I we are back. NBA scrimmage games uh, are in the books, uh, in the bubble, uh, and I wanted to bring on Wes Wilcox, is now with SiriusXM and NBA TV, former GM of the Hawks, uh, and we're going to talk uh, about a lot of stuff, including his role at Sports Business Classroom, uh, where both of us uh, will be presenting this year, uh, as well as uh, just uh, the overall NBA bubble experience and his thoughts uh, on that. How are you doing, Wes? I'm doing good, Nate. It's good to be with you. I've listened to many of the Dunked On podcasts, so I'm uh, I'm grateful to be on. Yeah, and we're grateful to have you as well. So put on your GM hat again for us here for a second, and I'm sure you've thought at times what it would be like to be working for a team that was going into this bubble. So I want to just kind of give you a blank canvas to start with of you know, just what some of your general impressions are, what you would be thinking about as someone working for a team with this incredible logistical challenge in front of you. Yeah, well, first, of course, the health and safety of everybody involved. As everybody said, that, that of course, would be your number one priority, making sure everybody's following the NBA protocols. Um, and then just a, a, a big-time nod to what the NBA has done. The magnitude of this lift, you guys have talked about it on your podcast. It, it, it's incredible how much work has gone into this. And, and even watching these scrimmage games and, and looking at how good the court looks. So, I, you know, you, you got to just respect the amount of work that's gone into it. So you want to try to be your do your best to be a, a good partner to the NBA. Um, and then I do think, Nate, it changes, though, like what you're thinking about from a GM's perspective, depending upon the type of team you're, you're, you know, you're with. If you're with a contender, you know, the Clippers, Lakers, Milwaukee, Boston, Toronto, however you want to define that group versus the race for eight in the West or the teams with lesser expectations, you know, the Washington, Brooklyn, San Antonio, each of those teams or groups of teams would have different challenges that you would certainly be thinking through differently as a, you know, as an executive with one of those teams. Yeah, well, let's take it uh, then uh, by those groups that you talked about, uh, starting with the the teams that, that, you know, we don't have to talk about exactly who that is, but the teams that might be viewed as a contender that are gearing up for, you know, potentially uh, three months here in the bubble. What would be some of the, the paramount considerations there? Well, number one, as of course, availability. So health. And these teams, <laughs> most of them have the benefit of the runway. They have time, so they should take their time, of course. And we're going to probably see that in these seeding games. And then, you know, preparing for a long stay, like what is what is the the mental health of your team? You know, can you incorporate potentially families down the road, like has been talked about after the first round of the playoffs? And, and how do you keep the group sharp when the uh, the novelty of the – what looks like NBA summer camp wears off when the fishing and the golfing wears off and the competitive, you know, the competitive games begin, you know, how do you keep everybody excited about those games would be a lot of the things you're probably thinking through as an executive. Yeah. What about for that group? I, I, the middle group to me, that's kind of the toughest challenge of anyone. Your new Orleans, Portland, Memphis to where you've, you're coming in with this unprecedented four month hiatus and now you got to actually be ready in games that count starting on July 30th, July 31st. For sure. And and the pressure is probably more on Memphis than those other two because they have a jump start. And so every time you lose a game, you could feel like it's, you know, slipping through your fingers. And of course, we just saw they had a big injury to Justice Winslow, who they had not played with, of course. But still, that's going to impact them. Um 
But yeah, if you're if you're New Orleans, you got to get Zion back. You got to make sure Zion's being tested every single day. That's probably your number one focus if you're the Pelicans. Of course, Portland trying to get your team ready with players who have not played for a long stretch now um, to try to get your timing together to, to be ready to win games right away, close that gap with Memphis, get in that playing game, and so. It is really fascinating. You know, the race for eight is one of the more interesting things to watch in the bubble. Certainly, it probably is the most interesting element of the seeding games, though you could argue kind of the middle of each conference, how those kind of two through seven, three through six, how those are going to play out, because, of course, matchups matter, as we know. But beyond all that, race for eight is going to be fascinating. Yeah, for sure. When you've been involved, you know, in organization, I mean, when when did you start in the league? Like 2000 or something something uh, like 2001. that? 2001. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you've got a good feel for what it takes for players to come back after a long layoff. So, I, I mean, is that is that realistic to expect, you know, teams like the Pels and the, and the Blazers to be at, you know, essentially 100% in games that matter starting, you know, July 30th, July 31st? You can be close, I would think, because, you know, it's hard to work in players that haven't been around or in playing with you for the majority of your schedule. So like Portland, for instance, with Nurkic and Zach Collins, that'll be a harder, you know, integration um, or a more challenging integration. But at the end of the day, they're going to go where Dame and CJ lead them ultimately, and those guys are pros. And and if you're Portland, you really just got to make sure that you're in nine, so you can be in the play game in the worst case scenario, and then you got two games to try to make the playoffs. Yeah, you know, I've been encouraged by the relative dearth of muscle injuries. You know, we've seen a little bit yeah. with the Pacers, but nothing where you know each team has like four guys down with a hamstring injury or something. For sure, and that, that's what you would be concerned with, the soft tissue injury because of the lack of conditioning or the ramp-up time. And, you know, Nate, we, I think you guys have talked about this. We would talk about it all the time in, in front offices or working with teams. There's always that return-to-play date that everybody focuses on. Yeah. And, and that's one benchmark, but the benchmark to f- return to full pro- productivity is oftentimes months after that return-to-play mark. And so that's a little bit what you're talking about here, I think, as you know, specifically with Portland. But but because they've had so much time off, they should be in 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 the condition needed um, it, from a medical standpoint. The question is going to be: Do they have the timing and kind of cohesion with their group to be ready to win when you need to be, you know, so quickly in with you know with just eight games to to establish yourself. Yeah, and obviously the reports are positive. For example, Collins uh, and Nurkic, and you know from your time working for a team that you know nobody would ever hype up how their players are looking in a practice or or uh, or, or anything like that. So uh, I think we can count on them being a thousand percent when the season starts. I see what you're doing there, Nate. <laughs> uh, so this off season is evolving to be a fascinating one, and you know it seems like. At least the zeitgeist is we haven't had official reports, but people in the league kind of expect that the cap is going to be around the same as it was this past year, uh, 109, even if the revenue might not necessarily dictate that. So with this offseason, now it's going to be truncated as well. You know, very shortly after the finals, we're going to have the draft, then free agency. What are some of the major issues that are going to confront teams in this offseason compared to normal? Well, number one is the draft. 
how much time do you get? How much information do you get? Is there a combine? Is there not a combine? If there's not a combine, how are we going to get medical information? You know, teams have been doing interviews through Zoom with prospects, as we know, but are they going to get an opportunity to sit down and go to dinner? The draft is a huge element, of course. That's a big unknown. And then how do you value free agents? We know we've read and heard and talked to people that have said basically what you just said. The NBA is likely to keep um, the cap as, as stable as they can and then make adjustments to the system otherwise, as you've talked about with the escrow withholding. And But still, h- how do you then value free agents? Are you going to value them based upon the historical comps like we've done um, it, based upon product production? There, but there's always some level of confidence in the future numbers that the contract you're going to hopefully sign a player today is going to improve as the cap increases over time. And we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, and then layer that on layer on top of that, h- how many free agents this year with their agencies and representation are going to sign one-year deals to try to plan towards 2021 where there will be more certainty um, and a lot more money in the market for teams? Because we know this offseason, like I'm, I'm modeling five teams to have a significant amount of room, Atlanta, Charlotte, Detroit, Miami, New York. We know this can change with trades and all sorts of things, but th- that's a, a, a good base, but it's only five teams. And so if we get a bunch of players signing one-year deals, planning on a more stable 2021, you know, we're setting up for a very challenging offseason. It's kind of funny. It's almost like we're on an on-off cycle every year now. We go into 2018, yeah. cap doesn't rise as much, lots of teams worried about the tax after the excesses of 2016 you've got unprecedented number of guys signing one-year deals they all dump into the nexus halcyon year 2019 2019. crazy stuff happens that's right and now we're really there's only one major free agent he seems almost certain to resign with the lakers that's a anthony davis and now we go into 2021 again so it'd be interesting to see if this continues to be kind of cyclical you've also got this the draft this year is reputed to not be as good. The draft next yep. year is supposed to be really good. And then, of course, you have all the COVID uncertainty as well. And uh, God willing, you know, we'll be at a point next summer where there'll be more certainty and, and we can be back to business uh, as normal. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting uh, as we go into this. And do you think there might be some teams that can get value if they are willing to go for a longer deal and maybe just certain players who are free agents the first time are like, hey, I got to get this life-changing money and security now. Well, the restricted free agents of Malik Beasley and Brandon Ingram, who are really the top of that restricted free agent class, you know, those are probably going to be a little bit more challenging, even though, you know, Ingram's had a fantastic year and Beasley, what he did in Minnesota showed what he can be as a true starting two guard in the NBA. Um, But to the unrestricted group, and there's a good group of some, it's small, but Fred Van Vliet, Evan Fournier, Joe Harris, Davis Bertans, and Montrez Harrell. I'm really interested to see if this group of free agent teams that I, or I'm sorry, room teams that we talked about, Atlanta, Charlotte, Detroit, Miami, New York. I'm really curious to see if, if these teams are going to be aggressive and how many of them maybe try to prioritize the future with certainty on their contracts. You know, the only team there that we've heard is planning towards 2021 free agency, of course, is Miami. New York could be in that mix, especially if they make I, – I, I like the New York setup. I think they can change, They can turn very quickly here. they got to hire a coach, um, but they have the runway it need, needed to build a really good team. they just got to get the decisions right, of course, but the runway's there. Um, 
And Detroit's another interesting team that we didn't mention in terms of the free agent list because, of course, they have the early bird, um, you know, trickiness of uh, Christian Woods' contract, and that could that could sway, you know, be a domino for that organization. So, I'm really interested at at how these teams and these free agents that we just talked about um, how they're all going to play out because these are some really good players that would help, you know, any team they're on. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. The Detroit situation is fascinating too because he's a young player. You in theory would want to keep him around, but he also has a, a limited body of work, and he's a center, which, uh, as we know, have yeah, become exactly. le- lesser valued. And so that yeah, that'll be interesting if he does not take. I mean, I imagine they're going to offer him pretty close to what they can offer the most, what they can offer him under the early bird. But if he doesn't, if that's not good enough for him, I think uh, yeah, that situation can get very interesting. Um, you know, we've we've had to play this game a number of times. And that's why what you try to do, the great lesson is now, and Detroit claimed Christian Wood on waivers, so they didn't sign the contract. But the big lesson here is sign players to three-year deals. <laughs> stay away, <laughs> yeah. or, or three consecutive one-year deals. Try to stay away from the early bird game. If you're a room team, if you're not a room team, it's, a, it's in some ways a little bit easier, even though you can still lose the player. Yeah, I remember you guys had that situation with Paul Millsap. You guys yep. signed him to that awesome contract for two years. I think that was, what was that, the 2013? Yep. Off season, right. and then going into the 2015 off season, you got you built up beautifully. Like you won 60 games, you had to keep that group together, and it was. I think you ended up having to use room on Millsap, right? Like he didn't fit into the early bird, is my recollection. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and we ended up losing Demari Carroll, who ended up signing in um, Toronto because we we ultimately had to do exactly what you're saying. We, we had to use our room to, re, to to re-sign Paul, which was a good decision as well. Of course, Paul yeah. ended up being a two-time All-Star on that contract as well, but four-time total with us in Atlanta. But ultimately, if I could do it over again, if we could do it over again, we would certainly have tried to get Paul on a, on a longer contract in the beginning so we wouldn't have been dealing with the, you know, the difficulty of his early bird rights. Yeah, well, I mean, you couldn't have known that he was going to turn out. I mean, he developed it incredibly well in Atlanta. I mean, that's one thing that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I, I back in those days, uh, I you guys developed so many players. Well, Kent Bazemore, Jamari Carroll, Millsap was you know not viewed as a good defender. He evolves into one of the best defenders in the NBA. You know, under uh, Coach Budenholzer and, and Kenny Atkinson. I mean, what were some of the you know you so you guys when you were there were maybe one of the best developmental teams. What were some of the key tenets uh, that you focused on that enabled you to do that was that was part of it luck or was uh, you know you got guys to shoot a lot better you know what was the the real focus there from a a development standpoint that you guys were able to be so successful well it started with danny ferry in 2012 when he became the gm of the hawks you know he understands coming from san antonio and and really the experience with LeBron in Cleveland, you have to find a way to, to draft well and then develop those players. And it really starts with acquiring the right characteristics of players that can improve. If you acquire guys who know, you know, understand their game, they're open to being taught, who have like a general desire to be good and then a work rate to go along with it, if you bring those people into the program, you got a chance to develop them. And then the second component is the coaching component. And it's it's as critical as the first component. And, of course, we hired a great coach in 2013, Mike Budenholzer. And Bud talked about player development from day one. I mean, he hammered it. And then we ended up hiring, like, a coaching staff 
it's one of the things that I'm so grateful for the time in Atlanta because of the people we were able to work with. You know, we had Quinn Snyder, Kenny Atkinson, Taylor Jenkins, um, you know, who have all been very successful wow. as head that, coaches. Yeah, I forgot you. I had all those guys at once. That's a ridiculous staff. And yeah, and, and that was our first year. We all of those guys were there in 2013. We hired Kenny in 20, 2012 before we hired Bud. Um, and so, and then he, it goes beyond those three, though, because then you have Darvin Ham, who is just a fantastic coach. Um, Charles Lee with us as well. Ch- Charles does a does a great, great job. Um, and so, you know, we just had a great group of coaches, and we had, uh, you know, an infrastructure put in place from the at, you know by the at the very top with our leader and Danny. And then you surround that with just a great deal of uh, coordination with the rest of your development staff, with which is your athletic performance team. You know, your physical therapist, your strength conditioning coach, your athletic trainer, um, you know, really got to put together a comprehensive plan that ties it all together that is completely connected because that's that's what it's about, really. It's it's not just about the skill development, but it's about the physical development, the athletic development and coordinating all of that with, you know, within the entire program. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have access to full NBA practices, but I do make sure that I always get there early before games to, to do my work and see some of the guys who aren't playing. And I, I am surprised. I mean, there are some teams that you can tell, you know, they're putting their guys in at least like little modules of three on three to help improve their recognition. And you're like, okay, this, you can tell there's an idea that we're going to make this look like what this guy's role is going to be in a game as much as I can. And then other teams, it's like, all right, let's just go out here. We'll throw you the ball. You shoot a little bit before the game. And like, you know, obviously maybe they're doing some other stuff in practice. I don't want to cast too many aspersions, but you know, you can tell when there is a comprehensive plan. Um, you mentioned that you you had a, this really good staff, and I've always wondered about this. If as you're an executive, how do you evaluate who you want to hire as a coach? Because it seems like you know you have a two three hour interview or something like that. You know, depending on, on the level, it could be more than that. But like, how can you evaluate whether someone is going to be good in that short of a time and put together a, like kind of an all star staff the way that y'all had? Well, it really starts with the place for your organization because you got to get the right coach at the right time. And it's funny because you hear this oftentimes. People talk about, "Oh, I'd hire pl- I'd hire person X." Well, that 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 person might be a great basketball coach, but he might not be the right coach at the right time for your organization. Maybe you're developing and you need to focus younger, or maybe uh, you know you're a team that's ready to compete for a championship, and so you want somebody that you've seen do it before. So so that's a big part of it, understanding where the organization is. But then secondly, you got to agree on style of play, and you got to you got to under you got to agree on core values. And so, you know, like any other job, you set your criteria that you're looking for. Um, typically, you would have a short list going into it, but you want to cast a wide net to, to meet some people that you, ha- you know, maybe aren't as familiar with. Um, but if you agree on style of play, you agree on organizational values, and you're trying to find the right person at the right time in your organization. Um, and then it's not just about uh, player development. It's about staff development, trying to identify people who can come into your organization with opportunity that can, that can grow into larger positions. And that forces an organization to think not just about the guys sitting on the bench or the guys behind the bench, but the guys in the video room and the guys on the road scouting and, and really building an organizational plan, uh, staff development plan, so you can say, look, in time we can grow this entire organization and sustain as you lose 
lose Quinn Snyder, Kenny can step in. And then when you lose Kenny, Taylor can step in. And then when you lose Taylor, Pat St. Andrews can step in. And that's really it, it, that's what it's really about. It's really about an organizational plan from the very top that's thinking about development throughout. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and I think that's part of the reason why you'll see that there are certain teams. I mean, some of that is just hurting, I'm sure, but some of it also is that you know, player people who come out of Miami. You're you're in Miami for a year, right? Like early on. Yes. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Or obviously San Antonio for a while now. You guys with the Hawks. Um, you know, a lot of people under Mike Budenholzer in particular have had a lot of success. And you know, if you have that philosophy, then it, it seems like you can develop people a, a little bit more. So obviously, you know, you you guys should be proud of the work that you did. Uh, in Atlanta, um, you know, especially with development and the coaching staff and putting together that that sixty win team. But as you look back on it, you know, what are some lessons that you've learned from your time there about things that you thought could have done better that you would apply to the future? Yeah, the basketball decisions are probably the easiest part of that because you look back at all your decisions and you're trying to understand how you can make better decisions. And so long as you understand why you made the decisions you made. And you put in the effort, of course, which most of us do. Th- then you can say, "I can, I can use that experience and knowledge to make a better decision on the future." Um, one of the biggest lessons that it, y- you can't really prepare for until you get to go through it is the difference between the assistant GM and the GM, because the jobs change dramatically. Yeah. And and what you're able to, you know, how you become an assistant GM and how you have success as an assistant GM, you know, being as strong technically as you can be in the areas that you know you're focused on whether it be player personnel or the cap or strategic or strategic planning um you know your drive your willingness to sacrifice producing the information making like trying to make recommendations that's very different than the role of gm which is about leadership and organizational process and empowering a group and having a vision for the franchise and then decision making and so Having gone through that, like that's a great lesson that you have to learn um, and experience teaches you that. And then the other one is media. You know, so many guys in the NBA, especially in, in front offices, you know, they don't engage in, me- in media. We, we don't get media training. Um, you know, we, we're, we're many times we're, we're concerned. We're very conservative around media because everyone's thoughtful about, you know, not wanting to say something that can somehow be misconstrued or somehow be shared that you didn't think was shared. And so really have, ha- having a plan for the media, not just for yourself as an individual, not just the organization, but for the entire staff. Um, because all your staff is going to be hit by media. And I, you know, I certainly was not prepared for that element of the job when I stepped into it. And it's something that now, especially doing media going forward, you know, I would be much, much more prepared or much better prepared to handle in the future. Yeah, it's funny. I've always felt, I felt this at first that, you know, even though I was in media, you know, I always tried to see things from the team side. And I'm like, why did people on teams tell media some of the stuff that people tell that, that they tell them right and you know you'll talk to people who you know i mean i have plenty of private conversations i'm sure you do too of people who are just you know they'll be complaining about their organization privately you know they don't expect it to get out necessarily but you know or, or they'll tell you some inside stuff and you're just like man like you know why are you telling me this you know it's, it's like yeah. it, it's shocking and you know, and we've seen certainly, I mean, I think, for example, like in Philadelphia, Sam Hinkie, I mean, I don't know this to be true from talking to him, but I would imagine that if he had it to do over again, he would have tried to court the media a, a little bit more because it is, you know, it, it's really easy for 
constant negative reports to start to get to the owner and yeah. you you it's much easier if you don't have you know that one local columnist who yeah you know me as a serious basketball analyst i might dismiss that guy but maybe your owner doesn't maybe if you know you, there's a paper killing you in uh uh constantly in the the sunday opinion every week from a, a guy who doesn't really know basketball that much you know that's going to actually come back and hurt you so yeah it is between not giving up too much information but also like to some degree, ensuring favorable coverage, it seems like that's a, a difficult balance people, to ensure. Yeah, people give people they like the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And that's really what you're trying to achieve. You're, and I, I was scared of media early on. I, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, I was like fearful of saying something wrong or saying something I shouldn't say. And so what you do is you run away from the media, and the media feels that. And so yeah. I, I was not at all prepared, and and so in turn, what I've what I've done with in the past, and I've shared this with a bunch of my friends around the league, is look, it's really not about what you don't focus on what you shouldn't say, focus on what you can say, focus how yeah. to say it, and and look, media, most media that I've learned, they're total pros, they get it, it's just it's a job to them, and and they understand if if you can't give them or you can't you know share something with them that is an internal thing. Um, I think most really professional media guys understand that. It's just really hard, especially as a young guy coming up, if you haven't had that exposure and all of a sudden you're in that chair and now you got to figure out how to do it and you don't have yeah. that experience, and then you maybe make a mistake or two, and then all of a sudden you don't get the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> then now we see why it's really important to, to have relationships with the media. You know, it, it's funny. I, I think – so much of it is just simply being affable. And, you know, I, I think this is great advice even to players, too, of just, no doubt. hey, if you could just talk and you got a couple of quotes, like Steve Kerr, for example, oh, right? So like, good. He, he is well known for being, like, great with the media, but, you know, having, some, having covered him for six years now, he never gives you anything on, like, the actual strategy of what they're doing, right? He's just, you know, he'll have some quips. He'll he'll give you some generalities. He'll talk about, you know, stuff outside of basketball, which is great if he wants to pursue that. And he always treats everyone professionally. But, you know, he kind of keeps it close to the vest on the stuff he wants to keep close to the vest. And yet he still has a great reputation with the media. So, like, it is possible to not, you know, give up a bunch of inside information and still have, like, a good... Uh, a good reputation. Nate, it helps to be naturally funny. And if you're not naturally funny, you're in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, Steve, Steve might be one of the more emotionally intelligent people that oh, I've ever, ever been around. So, you know, it, maybe not everyone can replicate that formula precisely, but yeah. A lot um, of us are trying. Uh, not very many of us are having that, that kind of success, that's for sure. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be together again this year uh, at Sports Business Classroom as we have been in past years. Just uh, tell people what Sports Business Classroom is doing this year. Yeah, we're excited to be back. Um, you know, Warren Legary, Albert Hall, and Larry Kuhn, kind of the founders, the, the the executive team or so of Sports Business Classroom. You know, they started this thing five years ago. I didn't know much about it at the time, uh, but I've really learned the last couple of years how valuable it is. It's truly a, a great opportunity for really anybody, but specifically young people, um, you know, an opportunity to, to learn what, what goes into the, you know, all sorts of jobs across the NBA. So anybody aspiring to work in the NBA, it's an opportunity to learn across multiple, you know, multiple elements of, uh, of what goes into basketball, what, you know, whether it be the salary cap, media like we're talking about, how to get a job or stuff like scouting, video, and analytics. Yeah, and what is your role going to be this year? 
Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the this kind of scouting video analytics area is is kind of we have two guys, Dave DeFore, who you know, and Seth Part now. Dave's gonna focus on the scouting and the video side. Um, Seth will focus on the analytics and kind of give you know educational lectures teaching on on in these areas kind of dive into some video stuff watch video together work through the analytics stuff i'm not really sure what goes on behind the scenes in the analytics world nate you're gonna have to explain that to everybody else i'm just used to reading the spreadsheets and trying to interpret them um and then my perspective you know from from my seat what i'm going to try to do is is share how teams think through team building and we'll probably focus a little bit more on free agency this year because we're fortunate with the what's going on in the world, the COVID delay with the NBA season. Um, we're going to be doing SBC before free agency for the first time. And so we're going to try to work through a free agent list. We're going to talk through how teams organize that free agent list. We're going to we're going to work through case studies of teams. Hopefully that we'll be able to give the students. Um, then we're going to ask those students to you know create targets, and then we'll work through a process of how we value those those players. And value is always an interesting conversation, right? Because there's a relative value and there's an absolute value. The sure. team likes to think about absolute value. Unfortunately, we have to deal with the relative value, which is the, what the market is going to is going to sure. drive. And so we're going to hopefully put students into some of these situations where we can not just kind of work through as teams would think through these decisions, but give them realistic you know, uh, case studies to work through and to try to, to try to plan while being kind of nudged by a mentor. So working with, uh, you know, pods of students working through, uh, decisions that, you know, teams that we're talking about this year, Atlanta, Charlotte, Detroit, Miami, New York, how would they use their room? And hopefully we'll be able to work through all that together. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being a, a part of it once more. And you can go to sports business classroom dot com uh, to learn more Wes it is uh, great having you here on your debut and would love to have you on uh, regularly if we can swing it thanks Nate and hey we're not going to mention that we we sat and interviewed together are we gonna bypass well, that whole thing no no I guess I, I thought we were, we were short on time yeah no it was uh, uh, Adidas Nations in 2015 wow, I was you remember still working. it better than I do well uh, I was uh, you had uh, you know Probably uh, hundreds of interviews with people, and I had—I think I've had uh, three with NBA teams. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you guys were looking for a cap guy at that time. I was looking to transition out of being a lawyer, and uh, you know, so we met at, at like this uh, fish place near Adidas Nations. But I remember actually, I thought I did pretty decent on the interview, and I mean, this is actually something that they have at SBC where they talk a lot about professional development. And you asked me one question, and I still remember it today that I just completely fucked up the answer to. And it was basically like, mm-hmm. you know, what can you bring to an organization that like someone else wouldn't? And I was just like, you know, I, I you know, and I'd sent you probably 15 pages, single space of like my plan for the team for the next four years and all that. Like you asked me that. And I just, I blanked on that because I was like, all right, I don't want to sound like I'm really arrogant here. Like I've never actually worked in the league. Like how can I say I'm better than anyone else and i ended up like giving a crappy answer and i'm sure that wasn't what ended up uh having it not work out uh but it was like i, I remember i was just like 10 seconds go by of silence i'm like oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean like i i was i was obviously really nervous i'd never interviewed with an nba team before or anything but it was uh uh it, that was an interesting experience and i mean although it didn't work out and you ended up what was the guy's name that you hired again is matt uh matt elijah 
that Matt Elijah, who's with the Clippers now, I think. That's right. Um, and so that obviously worked out great. And as it turned out, it worked out great for me too because even though I didn't get the job, I was like, you know what? This was why I don't want to be a lawyer anymore, and I'm going to just like give it a go with the podcast. And as it turned out, like the podcast has been great, and I've been that's been my primary job for the last five years. But that was sort of like, okay, I really need to go after this basketball thing. Like I can't sort of just rely on the lawyer thing for income and do the basketball thing half-assed it anymore but uh yeah that was uh that was definitely a, an interesting experience I mean, do you remember anything uh, of that at all it sounds like your, your memories probably aren't as uh as vivid as mine were but yeah uh, well no your memories are are very sharp i i do remember it um and i wanted to bring it up and i, I was hoping that you would because i have been in that situation and not received yeah. the job um, right. Just like that ended up working out for you. And ultimately, and I mean this, ultimately we made a mistake because we should have hired both you and Matt Elijah. Hmm. Matt, Matt's a total rock star, um, and, I, and I mean that. For, for those of you who don't know him, he's – I don't even know what his title is now with the, uh, with the Clippers, but he works in their strategy department with Mike Winger. He's, he also is an attorney. He's got just a terrific person, great knowledge of the cap and – you know, Excel, which has a great deal of value in the NBA. Um, but also, Nate, I mean, I, I mean this genuinely, you would have made us a better organization. And I listen to your podcast because I learn by listening to your podcast. Um, and so, you know, it was an interesting time. You know, you're sitting there under pressure trying to figure out how do you add to your team and you have 90 minutes to make that impression. You know, it's not like yeah. I can call somebody in your law firm and get a great feel. And so, and some of those questions we ask in, in interviews, we just want to see people struggle through how would how they would answer difficult questions and not even what they say, but how they handle them. And so I was new at it too. I was not great as an interviewee or interviewer. Um, I haven't been great as an interviewee at times also. <laughs> but um, I, I, I mean it. I, I wish looking back, when you talk about the things we could have done better, we could have hired you and Matt because it would have made a better, it would have made the organization better. Well, thanks, Ben. That's uh, that's really nice of you to say. Although I, I can tell you, I'm pretty opinionated. You might have got sick of me faster, <laughs> faster than we you hired thought. Dan. Ro- I've worked with Dan Rosenbaum for like 12 years. Oh. <laughs> I am good <laughs> with opinionated. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, Larry, uh, Larry, and Dan, uh, Larry Kuhn and, and, and Dan Rosenbaum. They've been friends since back like yeah. 1999. CPA FAQ. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Go we ahead, were in talk. high school almost. <laughs> all right well thanks again for coming on this is great and we'll look forward to having you back again and uh, please check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com as well if you'd like to learn more thanks so much nate we'll bring in danny in just a second to talk about the memphis and dallas young players that'll be fun to talk about ja morant and luka Doncic. memphis in particular has a, a ton of really interesting players but we got a little bit of news to get to here first Everything still seems on track from a coronavirus standpoint. We haven't any news of positive tests. Scrimmages have happened the last two days. And actually, if you want to check out Danny and I looking at some video of games from before the hiatus to preview some of the games that are going to be in the bubble, you go to twitch.tv slash NBA, go into their video archives. You'll be able to find us talking over some live video of games, taking some questions as well from yesterday. Should be, you can watch it really anytime before the game started. Should be good still. 
Let's follow up on some coronavirus updates. Bam Adebayo and Kendrick Nunn both arrived Tuesday. They have cleared quarantine. They could play as early as Saturday in the exhibitions. Eric Bledsoe from Milwaukee has arrived as well. No word yet on Pat Connaughton, the other buck who, who tested positive. Ricky Rubio and Aaron Baines have, in fact, tested positive, but Rubio has cleared the virus. He is now in Orlando. Baines, however, at last we heard on Wednesday, is still in Phoenix. And Jalen LeCue and Elliot Kobo are not there for what is termed personal reasons. However, there was a report that four sons had tested positive. I'm not aware of any other sons testing positive other than Rubio and Bain. So it would stand to reason that those two are those other two. For Dallas, Trey Burke is set to arrive. Shortly, he may even already be there. In fact, that was as of yesterday. Russell Westbrook, we mentioned, is there. He may even play as soon as Friday. He said that he was asymptomatic other than a stuffy nose. He tested positive on July 4th, uh, but was able to do conditioning workouts during his quarantine at home. I guess this whole thing about, oh, if you test positive, you got to wait 14 days with no physical activity and get a heart screening. That uh, apparently never materialized, given all the reports of guys doing stuff, staying in shape. Spencer Dinwiddie, Westbrook uh, among those. Michael Porter Jr., Mike Singer reported that he is on his way as of Wednesday. I'm not sure if he's there yet or not. Nothing yet on Monte Morris uh, for Denver. They played a hilarious lineup with Nikola Jokic literally at point guard with Jeremy Grant, Paul Millsap, Mason Plumley, and Bull Bull. Starting Bull Bull had a pretty fun performance in their exhibition victory on Wednesday. Markeith Morris and Marcus Morris have arrived for the Lakers and Clippers, respectively. No word on Avicha Zubac or Landry Shamit, though, for the Clippers. And Montrez Harrell, as, as mentioned, Patrick Beverly, both have had to leave due to a family matter. For Sacramento, Harrison Barnes is just can't string together the two negative tests that he needs within 24 hours so he seems like he's doing better he's maybe on the cusp of being able to fly to orlando but not yet apparently and the one that everyone is watching is zion williamson with his family matter the pels and the nba did release a statement saying that he is getting tested regularly every day so the hope is when he returns he could just be quarantined for four days and then be good to go but of course there's the issue particularly with the injury history the unique body type of zion that it seems unlikely with it now a week before the Pels are to debut that if he does play in that you would imagine it's going to be pretty limited minutes maybe he's able to do some conditioning where he has no word at all on what the nature of that family emergency is the NBA has moved the lottery up five days it's not going to be on August 20th I think that's a good idea because I think the teams are going to need a little bit more time than usual to try to interview players do their scouting etc with the, a potential inability to actually meet with players in person. For Sacramento, Rashawn Holmes is out of quarantine. I probably should have talked about him more when I mentioned their center situation, but they should be okay. He'll be starting even with Marvin Bagley out for the year, as we talked about on the last episode. But between he and Alex Len, they should have enough at center. And for Portland, Yusuf Nurkic and Zach Collins both played today against the Pacers. Nurkic looked pretty good with 14 points against a very depleted Pacers team. In fact, the Pacers are really struggling. Demonis Sabonis, it's now been termed plantar fasciitis. 
that he had he had an mri and he said he hasn't touched the ball in six days and there's no timetable to return he said that a couple of days ago so seems unlikely that he will be there to start the season gogo Pitadze, who had filled in at times for them he has a sore knee before they even left and he hasn't done anything at all in orlando and miles turner did have some limited practice but sat out the exhibition today he might be their only center and they might have tj leaf as their backup center or Jakar Sampson and do a lot of switching. Victor Oladipo did scrimmage today, but looked a lot of sorts. And some of what he said implied that he is still considering sitting out the restart. He said, I'm assessing every day. Nothing is definite. I'll see how my body responds today. Hopefully I'll be able to play on Sunday. And he had further comments saying, yeah, people are saying I look good in practice, but that's just compared to January when I also wasn't good. And I have a higher standard for myself. And I guess it might be a little easier for him to not play if Sabonis isn't going to be there either and they're really looking shorthanded and just that they're going to be destined for the sixth seed regardless and not really have much of a chance to do anything. For the Clippers off the floor, the Inglewood City Council has improved has approved the environmental impact report for the Clippers arena. It's going to include a practice facility, some offices, I would imagine some other development as well. The team also says it committed $100 million to programs for Inglewood children and families, $75 million for affordable housing, and five and a half million to support first-time home buyers. I think that 75 and the five and a half is within the hundred million that they're talking about. The Minnesota Timberwolves are for sale. The initial headline was that Kevin Garnett was trying to put together a group. He doesn't have the scratch, I'm guessing, to actually really lead that group himself. Later reporting from Adam Schefter indicated that the Wilfs, who own the Vikings, are supposedly a potential buyer as are or as is a minority owner Meyer Orbach remember Steve Kaplan was supposed to be the succession plan but he couldn't find a way out of the Grizzlies with any kind of a alacrity so that uh, fell through but uh Glenn Taylor now feels like he has more of a team in place on the business side and with Gerson Rosas and Ryan Saunders so he feels better about selling the team uh, his business has apparently been hard hit by the coronavirus and he's had to focus more on those Taylor has provided the stipulation that he won't sell to a group that might move the team. They did just do a renewal of their lease through 2035 after receiving 70 million or so in public funds, in addition to putting another 70 million of their own funds into renovations of Target Center. Of course, if he were willing to move the team, probably to Seattle, they surely could make a lot more money. The last team to get sold, well, not technically sold, but Robert Pira bought out. Kaplan at all in Memphis for a 1.25 billion valuation and Minneapolis is probably a better market than Memphis is so you, although they've of course been so moribund but you'd have to imagine that Taylor will get at least that much finally Memphis Justice Winslow went down with what was called a contact hip injury does that mean a broken hip uh, apparently he fell and fell on his hip so maybe that's what it is it was interesting that they decided to specify that it was contact maybe that's just so it's like well you know it wasn't a muscle injury or something like that where it was related to the restart and any delay or whatever uh but Winslow continuing at what has been a injury hit career he's only played I think 11 games this year and Memphis exceedingly thin now on the wing recall that they moved on from Solomon Hill and Jay Crowder in that trade to get Winslow they got Deion Waiters who frankly would actually be helping them right now from a basketball standpoint they didn't really want him around their young players though so they cut him even James Johnson I think could have been a help but they instead moved him immediately for Gorgie Jang who is a fourth big for them at this point so that that was one that 
you know i guess jang's a little bit better than james johnson but johnson's skill set to me uh, helps them more so now at the three i mean maybe they go dylan brooks at the three and d'anthony melton is the starting two they really have no shooting off the bench at least grayson allen is gonna be healthy he's gonna have to be in the rotation they just don't have anyone who can shoot the ball it'd be either him or marco guterich uh both of whom we're going to talk about in a second here danny and i and you get a little better feel for what we think of those players but i mean they just need bodies on the wing kyle anderson is really of course miscast as a three maybe they'll play him and they just hope that jaron jackson shooting can carry them enough and maybe they feel like they can go a little bit more mobile if they play clark and jackson and anderson together at times but uh, memphis really it's going to be a lot on John Morant and Dylan Brooks and be interesting to see how many minutes they're willing to play John Morant because he remember was on a minutes limit early on in the season and they bumped that up a little bit as time went on but now he's been I won't say idle but obviously he hasn't been playing during this whole period okay let's bring in Danny now to talk about the Southwest Division we're going to do Memphis and Dallas today lots of interesting young players on both those teams in particular the Memphis Grizzlies and quick reminder of what this is we're going to go through look at the players with three or fewer years of experience generally unless it's somebody you really want to talk about and we're also going to give each player a development grade one through ten if they had significant NBA minutes last year so let us begin with the Memphis Grizzlies one of the most exciting young teams in basketball yeah and that all starts with the number two pick in the 2019 draft, John Morant. Morant averaged 17.6 points and seven rebounds in 30 minutes per game pre-hiatus. 18 PER, 57% true shooting. That's shooter. gotta be that's gotta be seven assists, right? Oh yeah, probably a seven assists. I just wrote in. I was I was used to doing points and rebounds off of the last group. Yeah, you're right. It's points and assists. Um, and the efficiency stats: 18 PER, 57% true shooting on 26% usage, and using Basketball Reference's version of the stat, 35% assist percentage. And a really interesting thing from Rant that I didn't, even though even though there were times that he his shot looked good, I didn't expect him to shoot 37% from three. But note, it's only on 2.83s per 36 minutes, which is not nearly as many as modern point guards usually shoot. Yeah, and this is something actually, you can go back and watch this still. I mentioned on the last show that we we're going to be on the NBA's Twitch channel. It's still there of going back and looking at some of the games from this season to preview games in the bubble and so we did memphis and new orleans and we talked about this uh on that uh if you just go onto the nba's twitch channel twitch.tv slash nba you can go back in their archives uh, and find it or i tweeted it out as well at nate duncan nba but regardless morant started off shooting around 40 percent from three but you mentioned the low volume and teams did go under on him in part because maybe not even because he's a, a bad shooter but more just because it was the best of bad options against him in pick and roll. Um, And I think he's going to get there. He's a solid free throw shooter. And, you know, he shoots this set shot and it's not the quickest release. He doesn't necessarily want to shoot that, but he's definitely comfortable and capable. So if you're going to go under on him in like a crazy, exaggerated way, I think he will be able to make the defense pay now and more so in the future. Right, but it is still going to be a challenge for Morant in terms of the pick your poison element because Morant, and this is something that that came up in the the quarter that we watched when they played against the Pelicans, he's so adept already in his age 20 season at getting to the paint especially getting to the basket as much a fair amount but really getting to the paint and 
at a certain point when a, a lead guard gets good enough, you do have to make that sort of choice about what do you want to, what is more important to take away. And for Morant, because of how dangerous he can be as a passer and ideally as a scorer in those spaces, you still might want to take away the drive or at least put more effort into it. And so maybe he'll have to do more. And Morant, it's interesting. So he actually was a higher percentile relative. So using synergy splits on catch and shoot than he was on pull-ups, but the volume of course wasn't the same. Yeah, and one thing that was a positive for me was his mid-range game. You know, he doesn't really have that classic jumper. As I mentioned, he shot a, a set shot, but his floater was better than advertised. So he had an option to go to when the big just was hanging way back under the rim and you know he shot it decently well around league average maybe a little bit worse at the rim and for a rookie point guard that's pretty good i know he's athletic but he's not strong and that's one of the things that's going to get a lot better so i think he can become definitely a plus finisher in time also an excellent cutter a good both running the fast break and running the lane on the fast break memphis played at one of the fastest paces in the nba so one of the things that he would do is get off the ball early throw it ahead to someone uh, like Dylan Brooks. Um, well, and that's that's yeah. actually a great stat from Synergy. Is so John Morant as a transition scorer, one point one four, one point one five points per possession. That's that's good. It's not unbelievable. But when you add in assists, which is something you do on Synergy, so you can do get transition possessions overall. That adds about 90, 90 possessions total. He moves from the fifty seventh percentile as a transition scorer to the ninetieth percentile as a transition scorer and assister. Memphis's points per possession in those circumstances one point five eight, which is phenomenal. Yeah, it is. And also, generally, point guards have a lower efficiency in transition because all the turnovers basically get charged to them. Yep. And so that's actually, for a point guard, that's actually a very good number in terms of his efficiency in transition. Um, anything else that stood out to you? I, I had a few things, fewer things I wanted to talk about. but Yeah, uh, so yeah. Morant, he's not as big of a negative defensively as somebody like Trey Young, but he still has a lot of a lot of work to do on that. And he's slight, doesn't really dance around screens yet, if ever. I mean, that might not just be a part of Morant's game. But like, if you want to use PIPM, he was a slight negative, you know, negative 0.5 on defense. And I'd say that's that seems about right. You know, like definitely below average, definitely not providing value on that, but not sabotaging Memphis's defense that off. No, he still has to get better at getting over screens. But considering how atrocious he was at Murray State, oh, I man. would say he was a little bit better than expected. And supposedly he got a lot stronger. I think he put on 12 pounds. And the early footage is that he's just as athletic as he was. So hopefully that will help him defensively as well. And I mean, you guys know this. We've raved about him for a long time. I had him as, I think, the number three overall prospect in basketball behind Luka Doncic and Zion Williamson among guys 23 and under. And he is one of the most creative ball handlers I've ever seen. He's got the ball on a string. He just manipulates the crap out of the defense in pick and roll, just makes guys look stupid a lot of the time. And one thing that really stood out to me when looking at both his stats and then the rest of these Memphis young guys that we're going to get to is I think he could actually be doing a lot more. I mean, start with the fact that he's, he's coming off of that knee injury last year. I mean, he said he really, it took him a while to kind of get back to feeling the way that he wanted to. So, I mean, because he missed summer league with that knee surgery. And then he also was limited to around 30 minutes a game. Most of the season, he ramped that up a little bit more as time went on, but he only averaged 30 minutes a game for the season and only 26% usage. 
on a team that didn't have much else and you know taylor jenkins comes from that milwaukee style milwaukee runs some of the fewest pick and rolls in the nba and that works better you know they don't have a ball dominant pick and roll guard the way this memphis team does but i think if they tried to force feed john morant more trey young style that it would work work better and a big part of that this is something we talked about during the regular year is when they actually go straight up pick and roll to him all the time at the end of games like it looks awesome and his clutch numbers were awesome they were uh, I, I looked this up and Morant's usage in clutch situations so the NBA defines that as within five points and within the last five minutes John Morant's clutch usage was 40.4 percent that was the sixth highest usage in the entire NBA and his true shooting in those circumstances 60 percent 60 percent and that's just him as a scorer that doesn't even include him as a distributor and everything else that is the second highest true shooting of any of the top 10 guys in usage in the entire NBA in clutch situations and the number one is Joel Embiid who functions in an entirely different way and Embiid's at 72 percent then John Morant at 50 at 60 and then the next highest is some guy named Giannis Antetokounmpo at 56 percent yeah generally of course the efficiency goes down in the circumstances partly because teams dig in more defensively partly because teams will have the lead and you run the clock down a little bit and you're trying to more burn clock than score at times and yeah I mean when he would go to pick and roll with Jaron Jackson or Jonas Valanciunas at the end of games I mean there are teams that just really really struggled to stop that and they had to start double teaming him 30 feet from the basket because they couldn't deal with him and then the last thing I'll say about him is he doesn't get enough attention for the way he's just pretzelizing guys in ISO uh and when teams switch on him he really makes guys look bad I mean and even guys who are you know pretty decent defenders you know decent like switching fours stuff like that like those guys cannot stay in front of him at all and especially if he can continue to refine his mid-ranger a little bit because guys just want to lay way off of him that could be another real weapon at the end of games that they don't necessarily go to that much so I, I like what obviously the culture that Jenkins is implementing here is really good and they weren't expecting to contend at all this year this was supposed to be a growing year they shouldn't get away from that but i think that there's a lot of headroom for john morant to look really good uh if they put more on his plate I think an appropriate putting more on his plate guy to talk about is Jaron Jackson Jr. In a very specific way, the fourth pick in 2018 averaged 17 points, 4.7 rebounds, and 1.6 blocks in just 28 minutes per game. Uh, Started 54 for the Grizzlies this year. 59% true true shooting on 24% usage. And... The big reason that he his the, that is we're excited about Jaron Jackson, you know, his offensive role. We'll, we'll get to that, but and his defensive, let's say, not growth, but forty percent on eight point one three pointers per thirty six minutes. That is a huge frequency, for, especially for a big man. And making forty percent of them totally changes his his viability as an offensive threat. Well, and I mean, we take, took it back to that first game as a rookie in summer league against the Hawks in the Utah summer league. I think it was eight out of 13 from three and Memphis coaching staff, JB Bickerstaff did not emphasize that part of the game. And Taylor Jenkins absolutely did. And while I think some of the growth that he had as a four man was good last year because he does have these other skills as we'll get to, I mean, unleashing him, he has that low release, but it's quick. He can shoot it on the move. He can even do a little, some step backs every once in a while off the drill. I think he hit one on LeBron to ice a game at one point against the Lakers. And so this is what he had, granted not a full season, but was one of the greatest shooting seasons by a big man in NBA history. And, you know, he's not quite at Carl Anthony Towns level, but very, very close in terms of that three-pointer. And, you know, we don't know for sure he's going to continue to make 40%, but I mean, gosh, it sure did 
look good and this is a team as we'll get to that really needs him in that role as a plus shooter um the other thing i like about him offensively is he can make some plays off the dribble a little bit if you try and close him down on that pick and pop uh or in spot up situation he's got that drive to his left hand pretty limited as a passer at this point in time um but he can do hard drives to his left hand for dunks uh, or even kind of drive into a, a mini post up a, and get a decent look out of that and you know he's decent as a role guy he's not super explosive going up for a, for an alley-oop but he can do that he's not an elite role man but he at least gives some optionality in that regard yeah and and something that intrigued me in in jaron's splits was the that he actually had some pretty decent in a small sample size numbers in isolation as an iso score 0.95 points per possession is 66 percentile and if you add in passes that goes up to 69th and again i don't think you want that to be a big part of of jackson's profile and with that small a sample one or two made shots makes a huge difference but as you said he does have a more varied skill set so if they want to ramp up his usage or shift that role and i think something else with with jackson that could eventually be there we'll, we'll talk about some of the limitations defensively but if they pair him with other floor spaces you know with, as this grizzlies build it out they could do some really compelling offensive lineups because they have a volume shooter at the five something we've talked about with the Pacers who haven't necessarily used Miles Turner in the way that the Grizzlies have used Jaron this year under Jenkins. Yeah, so let's get to the limitations now. And, you know, if we're doing development ratings, you probably got to give them like a nine on offense and a two on defense. Um, yeah, I was thinking, I was are, thinking yeah. a six overall. I mean, it's yeah because Jackson, part of what intrigued both of us about him as a prospect coming out of Michigan State, what were those defensive chops he had? He played a lot of power forward at, Mem- at Michigan State too, which is funny. But his foul rate was a big concern rookie year. 5.2 per 36 minutes. Second year, 5.2 for 36 minutes. No no change there. Not doing a, enough necessarily contesting shots at the rim. His, his 55.6% defended field goal percentage is actually almost exactly the same as every other Memphis big man, Valanciunas, Clark, yeah. and Chang, which is just kind of weird. I don't I don't have any explanation for that, but 55.6 is not amazing. It's not terrible, and we, we talked about how there's some noise in those samples. But as a defensive rebounder especially, there are some real concerns. Oh, big time, yeah. And he's not like some fundamentals, you know, Robin Lopez S box out guy. I mean, 13.7% defensive rebounds. He's better on the offensive glass, but. Uh, and that's part of why they've been wanting to play him next to a real center in Valanchunas a, a lot of the time. And, um, you know, the lineup with him and Brandon Clark is an interesting one where both those guys are a little undersized. Both guys who, in theory, can move their feet defensively in a switch, but it hasn't actually happened for them yet. I mean, that was one of the things that disappointed me is Jaron was not able to stay in front of guys the way the thought was going to be that he could do at Michigan State. I actually, I, I was uh, talking to a veteran this year uh, about his game, and he said, yeah, you know what, his problem is that he doesn't take the right angles defensively when he tries to recover when he's beaten to to use his length to contain guys and so that's got to get a lot better for sure I mean some of the numbers were pretty ugly for him particularly on defense and you know I don't think he's a disaster but between the lack of strength not being as quick not having the technique he's also just I mean, he's got pretty good timing on the ball as a shot blocker, but he's not really able to get over for the verticality. He doesn't pre-rotate, as you like to talk about. And then he's got that crazy foul rate. And, you know, the 28 minutes a game for a team that really desperately needed his shooting, you know, that's got to get higher as well. Certainly, they want to keep him healthy. I I get that. And they also had an effective bench unit. But, you know, he's just, he's got to stop fouling. I mean, that's number one. And more strength, more intelligence. Remember, he was an extremely young rookie. But it does seem like the idea 
idea that he was just going to be this unbelievable defensive difference maker is slipping away from us here. Right. And that is something you don't necessarily see the full color of it immediately, but generally you have a pretty rough idea of where they could go early. And if they have these preternatural instincts or can just be appear in places, apparate, as you like to say, sometimes you see that early. And we haven't had that many flashes from, from Jaron Jackson Jr. And it is interesting that RPM was very low on Jackson's defense. Negative 2.8 is shockingly high. And PIPM didn't see it that yeah. way, which means there's probably some shooting luck in there. But it's still, you know, the idea that he could be this, like, Miles Turner-esque, like, four-spacing five who could protect the rim, That's that possibility's still there, but the possibility that he can bring it defensively is fading a little bit. Let's do Brandon Clark real quick, his fellow big man. And Clark, I think this is his age. Age 21. Uh, no, that is wrong. It's 23. I think you got a typo there. Oh, that could be. Um, that, that's, why, that's why I was pausing so I could uh look yep. that up because yeah yeah he was he was older when he came out but that's right um yeah because he had that transfer some from san jose state to gonzaga uh, but i mean from a statistical standpoint offensively really just everything you could have hoped for yeah i mean uh, uh the the model a model darling because at 20 21 and 6 is in 22 minutes a game that's strong enough in itself in about thousand minutes but 22 per 67 percent true shooting on 19 usage 40 percent on just 1.73s per 36 but then and we got into this in a 15 and 60 during the year clark shot 49 percent on floaters which were a full fifth of his attempts and 78 percent in the restricted area which was about a half yeah and really as a pick and roll threat he's really good because he can get to that floater he's got great speed so he gets on top of the room really quickly he's a big part of their transition game wonderful alley-oop finisher uh, as well and you mentioned it uh, uh the 21.8 per 67 percent true shooting and higher usage than you'd expect to for this player type at 19 percent part of that is that floater and yeah 49 percent is really good but it's clearly a shot that he's worked on the 40 percent three-point shooting that's one that i don't buy at all he's still got kind of a funky release low frequency of attempts and it takes him a long time to get it off so you know if you leave him wide open or you want to space him in the corner on a set every once in a while and maybe he'll get guarded slightly that's fine but uh you know i don't expect him to ever be a volume guy out there as well yeah and something that i was wanted to look at with brendan clark was it seemed to me in in the minutes that i watched the grizzlies especially when he played with jaron jackson jr that the Grizzlies were getting worked on the defensive glass, so the opponent's offensive glass, and it ended up not being, the, the numbers ended up not being as, as rough as I expected them to be. He is the middle of the road defensive rebounding when he was on the floor. The foul, foul rate was was rougher in his minutes, and it, but it's hard to put all that at course feet because he's only putting up 2.7 fouls per 36 minutes, but I think some of it is just, just some of those lineups, and they were very young in them too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to see at some point that five-man young unit that they have, even with Justice Winslow now out. Um, they still have those five youngs. I hope those guys get some time. The thing that was a little disappointing for me on Clark was his short arms hurt him to me as a switch defender, and he doesn't really get a great contest on jumpers. You know, he's a little bit more upright he's a little bit more sprinting in a straight line and jumping as an athlete than he is quickly sliding his feet and then you know when guys would cross over on him he really was not able to get a great contest and i'd also say he's got to do some work on his pick and roll defensive communication 
And, you know, some of these switches would happen because he just wasn't really communicating that well with the small, where the small would kind of be in position and have him contained, but Clark would just take the guy and then the guy would dribble back out and he'd get stuck in a switch anyway. So that that happened a fair amount with him. So, you know, maybe he can improve that with technique as far as containing guys. And he's not getting, I don't think he's going to get roasted in a switch, but, you know, he's no Draymond Green in that regard either. Um, rim protecting, how are the stats uh, on that? I guess is he, he, he allowed 56% at the rim because he's a big man on the Grizzlies, right? Yep, that's the rule. <laughs> Let's scroll to Dylan Brooks now. Where are the top line numbers on him? Dylan Brooks, age 24 season, averaged 16 points and 3.3 rebounds in about 20 and a half minutes per game, started all 65 games he played in. Brooks had an 11 PER, 51% true shooting on 25 usage, and like a few other Grizzlies, upped his three-point shooting frequency, seven threes per 36 minutes, and shot 37%, which was broadly in line with his last couple of years. Yeah, and so that 51% true shooting, 25 usage for this player type, uh, he's just not threatening enough to have that type of a usage. Maybe if he improved his three-point shooting any even more, you could get there. But he's one of those guys where you're like, hey, you know what? Like, should you have a usage percentage? They're both in the starting lineup that's 1% lower than John Morant? Like, probably not, right? And I love Brooks's confidence. I love that he's reestablished his career. I think it's great that Memphis got him on that extension for three years, $36 million. And I also really enjoy his defense, as we'll get to. But you know, a lot of pick and roll, a lot of pull up jumpers out of pick and roll floaters shoots it pretty poorly at the rim. You know, that was a a big problem. And, you know, if you look at his pick and roll splits, they gave him plenty of room to explore the studio space. And the two things jump out about that. One is he took 127 jumpers off the dribble out of pick and roll and 21 floaters and 37 shots at the basket out of pick and roll where he finished it extremely poorly. And then what you'll see there a lot of times is when you're really mid-range heavy out of pick and roll, then your passing out of pick and roll is not that great either because you're not doing anything to really put pressure on the defense. Those are the shots the defense wants to give up. And so passing out of pick and roll, especially because he's a little thirsty out of the mid-range, in part because there weren't that many other options. Um, 249 shots out of pick and roll versus 89 passes that led to a shot out of pick and roll. And that is a low number. Generally, as you go up the positional spectrum of guys who can pick and roll, shooting guards, small forwards, they'll shoot more and pass less out of pick and roll compared to point guards. But that is a very low ratio, uh, particularly when he wasn't taking the greatest shots. Um, well, and, and you, now, when you look at yeah. Brooks's workload, it's more to me like a what it, like a second unit player on a team that needs a second unit creator. Like you could, there there are a few that we could point out this year who just didn't have a backup point guard. But they have John Morant, they have Tyus Jones, and so if Brooks can cut some of that out of his game, and then another striking thing for Brooks is that only this year, nineteen sorry, eighteen percent of his shots came in the restricted area, almost the same amount that came from ten to sixteen feet. He did make forty three percent of those this year but that's a part of why brooks only made 42 percent of his twos this year after a career high in um his rookie year where he made 48 percent. that's still his high watermark yeah and i don't know that that's going to get a lot better like you just now, you just want to lower it you, as, a, as a proportion yeah. of the shots he takes yeah like i said 25 usage for him is way too high and as a spot-up shooter he was pretty good and interestingly you know he likes taking contested shots his numbers on guarded versus unguarded shots per synergy were actually very even um generally obviously you're going to shoot better on on unguarded shots that might be noise but he's definitely comfortable taking contested shots and you know he would shoot a little bit coming off of screens deep three-pointers like his three-pointer is good like he was taking some pretty tough shots 
spots and you know that rate is solid so if you could focus a little bit more on that a little bit more off ball and then try to just attack some closeouts on occasion i i think it could look a lot better for him as this team really matures as an offensive group and then defensively like everyone on the grizzlies he fouls a ton which has got to drive taylor jenkins crazy because he came from milwaukee and the mike budenholzer where they really try not to foul but uh he's not entirely a stopper but he's got good strength he fights over screens hard he's not going to get overpowered um you know he might be a little slower afoot if you get him just way out on the floor against a quicker player um but he loves taking on the tough assignments willingly he's very competitive and you know the fouling is kind of it's almost a good thing because he's really trying hard and yeah you know he can foul out he can he can get some rough calls against him as well when he gets overly handsy but i think he's you know the combination of he and justice winslow i think is going to be a really good combination defensively for a long time particularly if he's only as guarding the second best guy on the other team instead of the best guy but he's not overmatched when he's guarding the best guy right and, and well, with, yeah, with, good, sorry. with brooks you think about what he could be if you just scale especially scale down his offensive role was you know 1.1.14 on points per possession on catch and shoot opportunities so if you add his defense as a complementary defensive player not necessarily the lead guy because he just doesn't have the right the right build for it against most teams and then you have him as a complementary offensive player i think his game starts to really sing even more than already does and then that extension three years 35 million looks like an even bigger bargain we already thought it was a bargain Agreed. Development rating? I mean, I think the biggest part of his, like, if you want to say, like, his growth in PER from his rookie year, because last year was basically lost season, was more in upping his usage. But I, I, I'll give him a six because he came back from injury, and I, I want to give us a reference because there are a lot of guys who don't, who don't come back the same way. So, yeah, a six seems fair. I mean, I, I would go with a seven just because I think he's really established himself uh, as a starter in the league. We didn't we didn't know that, and you know his three pointer is for real. I think his defense got a lot better, and he, he's well, part and that, of and winning basketball. And that's a point to make about so Brooks played the most minutes of any rookie in the seventeen eighteen season, but he did it on a on a different team than this nineteen twenty Grizzly team that really yeah, needed. This him is a real team. Up. Yeah. Who do you want to go to next? Let's go to DeAnthony Melton. Melton came over from the Suns. So this was his second year, his age twenty one season uh, after playing at USC, and Melton averaged eight points, three assists in about 19 minutes per game, played about a thousand minutes pre-hiatus, 14.6 PER, 53% true shooting on about 20% usage, and 32% on 4.23 per 36 minutes. The percentage and the rate are both up a little bit from his year on the Suns. Yeah, reminder that Melton will be a restricted free agent this offseason. And he's another one of these guys where I'm like, hey, you sure you don't want to like give John Morant a, a few more reps here? Uh, uh, because he did a lot of pick and roll uh, as well. And the thing that stood out to me the most uh, about his game on offense, at least, was he shot it pretty well out of catch and shoot. You know, it's a relatively low number of threes per 36 minutes for a, a shooting guard, which is what he is, combo guard. But he only took 57 catch and shoots in the half court, but the shot selection there was very good. 47 of those were unguarded and 10 were classified as guarded, which is a, a crazy ratio. So he's really only shooting these on catch and shoots, at least when he's wide open. And, you know, he's right around league average in, in catch and shoot efficiency, but this crazy low volume. And then he really, though, shot way more off the dribble or did more off the dribble first out of spot up situations he actually puts the ball on the floor and drives much more often than he shoots it but he's a very effective finisher at the rim and then he's got a lot of this stuff off the dribble he took 70 jumpers off the dribble versus 57 catch and shoots and he was 17 out of 70 which pretty much all of those makes being two pointers 
So that's why his efficiency was not where you wanted it to be. And, you know, much kind of similar to Malik Monk, where when you consider how badly he shot the jump shot, uh, that it actually was pretty impressive. They had 53% true shooting, and he did that with the, his excellent work getting to the basket. Right. And so, Melton, if you if you want a number on it, he was 8th percentile in on pull-ups, 0.53 points per possession, which is pretty horrendous. But yeah, I, I, I mean, there, there's a lot to like about him defensively. He's feisty, 2.3 steals and about a half a block per 36 minutes, a 3% steal rate. And he it, one other player, we've talked about shooting luck, positive in defensive PIPM, negative in defensive RPM. But I like how tenacious Melton is. And, I, and, and you see that tenacity on both ends of the floor because he also works really hard to transition. Yeah, he'll he'll run hard in transition. He's another guy who can get those hit ahead passes from Morant or from Tyus Jones and very capable ball handler and you know he can push the ball in transition as well on defense he's better as a help guy than as an on-ball guy but we'll see whether he can you know is he gonna be Avery Bradley like no probably not and he's a better ball handler than Avery Bradley but to to me again a lot of this goes back to just get him in the right role offensively I think he can be a really valuable third guard for a long time um development rating for him I'm gonna go with the seven I would agree I mean the stats on him were good again another effective rotation piece and you know he'd shown some flashes in phoenix last year but that wasn't a real team this is he's contributing so yeah i agree i'd go with the seven as well now we can turn to josh jackson this was his age 22 season and he played the entire year after having his op his option decline so that meant this unusual circumstance we've seen it before with austin rivers and mario hazonia this is more akin to the river situation because josh jackson was playing on a different team at to, for this season but he averaged 10 points in 20 minutes per game, played in 18 with the Bay Club, also played a lot with their G League team. 14 PER, 54% true shooting on 23% usage. And continuing a through line of Josh Jackson's entire NBA career, if he could cut the worst shots out of his repertoire still, even even from the ones that he's already done, there's even I think there's even more room for him to grow offensively. Yeah, I don't know because I'm still not a believer in his shooting. Like, I think he has the mentality that like he needs to at least be doing something, which uh, <laughs> which maybe he shouldn't be. I mean, this was it was a step forward for him. He was yes. one of the best players in the G League this year. You know, he got some minutes for Memphis. He, you know, especially because he was playing a lot when they moved on from Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill. You know, so he's playing some small ball four as well. That also Jaron Jackson was out during a lot of the period that he was getting the most minutes. So he wasn't really put in a position to succeed uh, because he's still not that great of a shooter though again i thought he took some strides there i mean it's still a lot of floaters I, I agree with you but he's at least got it down to the point where like he's not just killing you offensively by you know sub 50 percent true shooting and 25 percent usage like he was back in his phoenix days and you know he definitely had to work through being in the g league you remember that the, how they were talking about he wasn't even going to join the big team obviously he got his fourth year option declined uh but you know he, he at least worked his way up to where they weren't like okay we don't want him around our team because you know he's just like such a, a bad apple so that he made some strides in that respect as well i'm interested to see what he looks like in the restart um I don't think he's a positive player yet, but I do think he's made some strides as so many players have to when it becomes clear you're not going to be a star anymore. You got to find a way to survive in the league. And I thought he took at least some steps towards doing that this season. And I've been thinking about his contract situation because I've been writing about it for a couple different things at The Athletic. And Josh Jackson, remember, he's in this situation, Austin Rivers, Kevon Looney, a few other guys, where he can re-sign with the Grizzlies. It just can't be for more than his declined option, which is not a problem for Josh Jackson because he's not getting $9 million anywhere. So maybe he re 
signs, should have an opportunity coming off the bench in Memphis. They, they don't really have a starting spot for him when Justice Winslow is available, you know, once they're full strength, which they're not right now. But does that and then gets full bird rights at the end of it, maybe that ends up being a, a reasonable path for him unless a team makes a strong offer, which is possible. But I don't know who would look at this season, even though Josh Jackson, I think I'd give him like a, a development rating of like a seven. I just think he was so much improved a lot this year and took out some of the worst parts of his game. But who sees that and goes, oh yeah, that's a definite starter or something like that. Grayson Allen in his age 24 season was the number 21 pick last year. You don't have to talk about him too much as he missed quite a bit of time with the hip injury and would have been out for the season, but he's actually healthy now. He's going to play for these guys too, actually, because with Justice Winslow out now, he's they don't really have anybody who can shoot on the perimeter other than Dylan Brooks and they need someone to do that and he's he's hit his three-pointers uh, okay um you know could take even more of them uh, potentially got a little more efficient from two he was supposed to be a solid defensive player with his athleticism that part of it we haven't seen yet uh, based on some of the numbers but you know we'll get a chance to see more of him now uh, with the some of the players who are in front of him no longer available or on other teams I kind of give him an incomplete absolutely for his his, uh, for his development jackson who we for we transition away from i'd probably give him like a six just because he was starting from such a low point yeah i gave him a seven um marco guterich lefty we did not see much of him he fell out of the rotation early got some chances early on but uh not very athletic has a little bit of ability off the dribble to run a secondary pick and roll but not going to get to the rim and finish and just didn't shoot it well enough i mean for this player type he's got to be a, a a great shooter and those numbers were not there for him yeah and goodrich has a second guaranteed season 2.8 million for 2020 slash 21 and then would be a restricted free agent in 2021 John Contra is an interesting guy. Got most of his time in the G League, only 167 minutes in the big club, two-way contract, and he's not really a shooter at all. You know, if you look in the G League, he only took 54 threes in 20 games. That's a very three-happy league, hit 33% of them. But he's got some other interesting aspects to his game. He's just tough, about 6'5", loves to get on the offensive glass. I mean, his splits in that very limited time are pretty hilarious. He had 15 points on eight offensive rebounds and 15 points on seven cuts. So incredibly efficient on those. He just has a nose for getting around the basket. And, you know, there's a lot of guys who like to be around the basket on this Memphis team. So that's not necessarily the greatest. I kind of liken him to sort of like a two guard version of TJ McConnell, who's not really going to take threes, but he just kind of wills his way into being a, a player who can do something. So he's someone to keep an eye on. You know, this was his age 23 season. Very tough fit due to the lack of shooting but he's just he's kind of a fun player to watch he's got some unique aspects to his game do we want to jump to the dallas mavericks and another fun player to watch uh yeah you mean the guy who had the best age 20 season in nba history this year that that dude yeah that guy Luka Doncic, 29 points nine rebounds at nine assists in 33 minutes per game as an age 20 second year player 28 per 58 percent true shooting on 37 percent usage and a 45 assist percentage so on the plays that he didn't finish he passed on a lot of those and he was the the alpha and the omega for the best offense in nba history this during pre-hiatus and it was an overall transformation we've talked luca is is an unusual one for this because we don't usually have players in their first three years that are mvp candidates and luca Doncic was one of those yeah absolutely and this is a, of course his second year at age 20 season and yeah i mean this is one of the most heliocentric seasons in nba history right up there with some of what we've seen it from harden and you know compare him even to someone like kobe or jordan who might have had similar usage rates those guys weren't passing 
the way that Doncic is. And so, I mean, you know, you've got probably when he's on the floor, he's either shooting or setting up shots on maybe like 70% of their possession, something like that. Uh, and, you know, he played in a true point guard role. They moved away from playing him with another traditional point guard this year. You know, we thought maybe Dalen Wright was going to start. They didn't go in that direction. And the thing that stuck out to me the most in terms of his development was his ability to really just cook guys in isolation and he's got one of the best handles ever for someone his size and you know it's not flashy in the sense that he's like oh going between his legs 97 times and like it doesn't look that tight but his understanding of using the defense's momentum against them in an iso where he and he's got that step back so he'll back up he gets the guy moving towards him and then he can blow by his hesitation it is awesome i mean he's was you know paul george he was beating him off the drill he's beating draymond green off the drill. he's beating like really good isolation defenders and getting to the rim and then he also is under such control that he's got this short floater he can go to off the glass as he comes in from the wing it's uh, he's also able to go left a lot better this year so i mean i probably gotta give him a 10 in terms of his development rating i did not see this coming uh i mean i thought he was maybe the best prospect in basketball already but i still didn't see him getting to this level this quickly and of course the top line numbers for their offense of being the best offense in nba history not relatively but it just in, ter- in raw terms of points per possession uh i mean you can't argue with a single thing that he's doing on the offensive end one of my favorite lucas stats is that he was he got free throws on 15 percent of his isos and that seems like a ton especially when you think about the the kind of the quote-unquote normal physical gifts that that would get that kind of a free throw rate and Luca one of the big revelations in his game overall which you saw in isolation I just got to is getting to the basket more and getting to the line more so as a as a rookie Doncic took 7.5 free throws per 36 minutes that jumped all the way up to basically 10 and if you go for shots in the restricted area those were 21 percent of his possessions last year 25 percent this year and when you ramp up your usage too and he's you know taking all these threes off the dribble and everything else getting there more converting 75 percent of his shots around the basket that can make him a really efficient player despite taking that many shots and 58 percent true shooting on 37 usage is insane well and just again like he's in a good ecosystem in dallas they always make sure the floor is space for him but like this guy can't jump like it does that was the reputation and certainly he got into better shape i think that really helped him a lot but 75 percent of the restricted area i mean you know that's like close to lebron james level of finishing at the rim it's it's just remarkable the level of touch that he has and he's such a good passer that you know he can manipulate the defense they're scared of collapsing on him too much and yeah i mean it's really just uh awesome awesome stuff well and, and from luka Doncic. the on off stats are, are are strong number five overall in pipm and number one in offensive pipm and then number 11 overall in rpm ninth in offensive and on both those stats, not negative enough defensively to really sidetrack it. You know, he's around a negative one in defensive RPM, and that's about what I would see with Luka. He's not a great defender. I don't think he'll ever be a great defender, but he's not killing you that often. He can be a functional piece, and it's also one of the other underappreciated parts of having somebody run your offense who's larger than point guard sized is it's a lot easier to kind of throw them into the mix. You can do more of the kind of like Tobias Harris tricks where the, the Sixers have all these like like-sized guys and they can hide Tobias Harris. It's a lot easier to do that with a dude who's 6'7 than Trey Young. Yeah, Absolutely. And we'll see. I want to see how much he's going to get attacked, how he's going to hold up defensively. You know, they're not necessarily a switching team uh, with the Porzingis. So 
that's going to be fascinating. But you, you agree with me? No, uh, ten development rating. I mean, I said he was. I, I said I don't pick second year players for most improved player, but I'm picking Luka Doncic anyway based on what we've seen so far. So yeah, that seems like a ten. Let's go to Jalen Brunson. Brunson, age twenty three, season eight point two points, three point three assists, and eighteen minutes per game, which is actually less playing time than he had as a rookie. Fifteen per fifty five percent true shooting on about twenty percent usage, and similar numbers from three compared to his rookie year, thirty six percent on four point two per thirty six minutes. Yeah, and Brunson is someone that I you know, I knew that he knew how to play and he was competitive and he is strong. But you wondered about the physical tools and he's been able to do well besides that uh, or despite that I should say. And you know, he's found a place even in some three guard lineups. He's cuz he's strong, he'll even guard three sometimes. He'll play with Curry and Daylon Wright on some of these backup units. Unfortunately, we won't get to see him during the restart due to the shoulder surgery that he had. Uh but I think he is just an understanding in pick and roll. He's been able to improve his shot enough and defend well enough to where he can let that be a good part of a game. He's, he's a burly lefty, and sometimes we criticize players because they need to slow down and finish it at the rim and you know allow themselves to see the floor more on their drives. I mean, we that criticism will never be applied to Jalen no. He operates the pick and roll like a 10-year veteran, and he's got that old man type of game. Uh, so I think he's maturing into a totally decent backup point guard. Uh, you know, he's about 50-50 shooter or, or pass out of pick and roll. 50% of the time will take the shot as compared to 50% that he makes a pass that leads to a shot. Um, worth noting the situation, the Mavs, as mentioned, have always had awesome spacing. And, you know, he's playing a lot in the second unit with Klebra and Porzingis. Porzingis and Doncic were staggered quite a bit. So uh, that start of the second and fourth, it would be Brunson playing with Porzingis. Um Things to work on for him. He's still very left-handed. He rarely finishes with his right hand, although he will drive to his right. He usually tries to bring it back into his defense with his left hand. And then his passing too, you know, he can whip passes to the corner with his left hand. Can't really do that with his right hand though. Um, and he's also, I mean, this probably is never going to change, especially with Ricardo's coach. He's not really a threat in transition, pushing the ball. So yeah, you, that's you, something you, to, yeah, to work like, on a little bit. Theoretically, like Dallas could could use a go-go point guard, but Brunson does a good, does a really nice job of doing what they need. And on largely positive in the on-off stats. So RPM thought he was positive on both ends of the floor, more on offense than defense, not surprisingly. Whereas PIPM had Brunson as more negative on defense than positive on offense. But capable backup point guard, I don't expect him to be more than that. But if we're talking development grade, I mean, I think a solid five. But remember, a five is good for a player who outperformed our expectations as a rookie. Yeah, yeah, five, six, I, I would be uh, right in that range for him uh, as well. Uh, Justin Jackson out of North Carolina, what would you make of his age 24 season? I've never been the biggest fan of Jackson. He was somebody that we didn't watch film of when he was when he was in college. And uh, then I, I wasn't super impressed with him in summer league, wasn't super impressed with him his rookie year, wasn't super impressed with him this past year. Um, age 24 season, six points, 2.4 rebounds in 16 minutes per game. Remember, he came over in the Harrison Barnes deal. Jackson had a 10 PER, 50 percent true shooting on 16 percent usage and for somebody who at point times has had a reputation as a shooter at least that's in my brain 30 percent on 5.9 three-pointers per 36 minutes which is just not good enough for somebody who is as limited as as jackson is in other offensive areas 
Yeah, and he does have that nice floater. He likes to work off the ball, come off of screens and curl into the lane for a floater at times. And that's not something that's really, he's not going to get plays run for him at the NBA level. Um, and then you look at the spot up jumpers, you 30% on threes and he was 28 out of 101 on spot up jumpers. That's really going to torpedo his season and his value. And the other problem too, is that he's just so thin. You know, he's listed at like 6'8", 210, and that 210 seems very optimistic to me. And so sometimes guys like that can really continue to develop their wiry strength. He hasn't done that yet, though. And he's also just an average athlete uh, and can't really bring much force to bear on the defensive end. You know, not a great finisher in transition. And so... I know there's things that people have liked about him in the past, but it's got to start with really good three-point shooting. And if he doesn't have that, he just he's not going to be a, a part of a rotation. So you probably got to give him you know a three and a half, a three for his development. I would say. Yeah, interesting. Even though that's the shot that wasn't falling for him, but yeah, three. I will. That will do it uh, for today. Uh, give you a, an idea of the schedule. We're going to do the usual Monday episode next week. We'll finish up with the rest of the Southwest Division Youngs, hit on some news. And then our next episode, we're going to do a gamer on Thursday night for opening night. And then we are going to do gamers on Friday and Saturday as well. So we're going to get back to the regular. And then we're on five days a week uh, doing the restart. Um, what about you, Danny? You got anything to talk about before we go? Yeah, I have a couple things. So writing at The Athletic, I have a couple of my solo offseason previews, including the Hawks, which came out on earlier in the week. And then we're working on the collaborative ones with Dave DeFore and Seth Partnow. Those are on the way as well for a few, a few other teams. And then Real Jam Radio with our friend Dan Feldman. So that, that'll be out on Thursday during the day, so you can look for that. 